If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. More than a year in, the war between Russia and Ukraine has resulted in tens of thousands of deaths, with repercussions on an international scale. It also continues to evoke parallels with a whole range of historical events, from the revolutions of 1917 to the breakup of the USSR in the early 1990s. Historian Serhi Plocky has written a new account of the war, which sets it in this longer context. And he spoke to Matt Elton about the ways in which history can help us make sense of current events. So, Serhi, we've talked a few times in the past about previous books you've written, um, but I wondered whether, due to the fact that this new book you've written covers events that are still unfolding and events to which you have a personal connection, whether this project was particularly tricky or challenging? Uh, yes, certainly it was. Uh, and I am I am a little bit anxious and nervous to see how, how uh, the book on contemporary developments by a historian will be received. It started with uh, basically me deciding that I, I can't do this project uh, because it was emotionally so so charging, so difficult. Also because um, we historians, we write about the things and developments that uh, to a degree are completed. We know the answer, what happened, and that gives us wisdom, that, that, that gives us perspective. And here you write about something that unfolds in, in, in front of your eyes. So it is challenging. 
And another thing is that you you try to figure out what is what is important, what is not in the news that came today or came yesterday. What will be important one year from now, let's say when the book is out. And it was new situation for me. Uh, before that, writing on the 17th century or even on Chernobyl, you knew what was important and what was not. Here you had you had to um, engage in some form of um, not exactly guesswork, but use your judgment and your instincts as a historian. During what period were you writing this book? What present day events does it cover? The book was written between March, so I really decided or, or convinced myself or allowed to, to be convinced that I can do this book. I started in, in late March. And uh, uh, really, the, the latest uh, developments that are there come from February. So it really um, covers the first year, the, the, the one year of the war. So March 2022 up until this, yes, this uh, February, until February uh, late February of 23. And it obviously also spends a bit of time putting the unfolding conflict into a wider and longer historical context. I thought we could talk about that angle of things first and then move on to talk about some of the ways in which history is uh, manifesting in the present. Um, What are the origin stories, do you think, of Russia that have fed into the current conflict? And at what point did they become so central to Russia's psyche? Um, History in a matter of ways written all over this war starting with the way how it was presented, uh, justified, legitimized by the Russian president Vladimir Putin. The war very often is called Putin's war. It's, of course, much more than that. But uh, Putin's personal role, responsibility for what is going on is very big and very important. And I don't remember from my experience uh, reading uh, about any other war where the history was used to, to, to such a degree to justify the war. So th- there was uh, an article by Putin uh, on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians that was published in the summer of 21, a few months before the start of the war. His speeches on the eve of the war were dubbed by some uh, history lectures. So there was a lot, a lot of history there, and history uh, in, in in Putin's interpretation and, and the argument that he was making was going uh, all the way back to medieval times, to the to the Kievan Rus, to um, legendary common origins of Russians and Ukrainians, and he was then going through the entire period starting with the 10th or 11th century all the way into into the 21st century. What that meant also that uh, for me, uh, writing this book, it was important to start with the myth of origins of Russia that links uh, Russia to Kiev, that explains why a um, monument to Prince uh, Volodymyr, or Prince Vladimir, who is a namesake of Vladimir Putin, was built in the very center, in the heart of Moscow in 2015, when Prince Volodymyr was really the prince of Kiev and ruled in Kiev. And what what did that mean? So uh, my first chapter really, really talks about deep history of uh, not so much of the conflict, but of the Russian-Ukrainian relations, mythology that is associated with that. And uh, for me, that history was important not just as a way to 
say, okay, that's a misuse of history on the part of, of Putin, or this is right, or this is wrong, or this is what happened. But I also look at this war as um, one of many wars that were happening in the 20th century about the disintegration of the empires, the rise of national states. And in that sense, the, the history of the Russian Empire and the sort of the tropes, the ideas that existed there and that Putin now is trying to bring back into the 21st century are also very important for me from that point of view. So again, there is a lot of history, especially in the first chapter, and um, that history is there for reason. One reason is that it's history that is being used by Putin to justify the aggression. Another one is that understanding the relationship between Russians and Ukrainians, the Russian imperial project and Ukrainian national project is also important for understanding of today's war. And it's very important, I think, to foreground the Ukrainian national project just as much as Putin's distortions of history. Is there a historical moment to which we can trace the beginnings of the Ukrainian national project? Uh, Ukrainians claim as the beginning of Ukrainian history uh, Kiev, Kiev and Rus, medieval principality that uh, was created in the 10th century. After all, the capital of Ukraine is in Kiev today. Uh, but if you uh, talk about modern nation, the uh, Ukrainian national, modern national project comes from the same roughly period where the national projects of most of Ukraine's neighbor, East European countries, are coming from. So this is 19th century. This is the um, idea of Ukraine as part not of the Russian Empire, but as part of the Slavic Federation of Nations, a, a very important part of that. So it's, it's, it's the time when the language, culture, history, and politics all come together in the mind of the thinkers, historians, people who collect folklore. Uh, so it, it is a very European story from that point of view. You write in the book that not until the 19th century did the Russian Empire encounter an enemy that it could not defeat, and the name of that enemy was nationalism. Is Ukrainian nationalism a key factor in understanding the ways in which Russia realized that it couldn't always succeed? Uh, yes, I would say that indeed the encounter with the, with the Ukrainian nationalism in particular became the most, the, the most challenging encounter for Russian Im imperialism and for Russian nationalism as well. Uh, the biggest troublemaker uh, until uh, the revolution of 1917 were the Poles. And they left in the middle of World War one and then the the, the revolution uh, that followed it, and uh, the Ukrainians really replaced Poles as the most difficult national projects that the empire that was reinvented, recreated as the Soviet Union, had to deal with. And uh, what we see in this war is it's not just the Russian imperial project that encounters Ukraine and national Ukrainian national identity. But it is also crucial for the rethinking and re-understanding of Russian national project per se. Because the war was justified by Putin by this claim that Russians and Ukrainians were one and the same people. This is a very imperial model of thinking about what is Russian nation. And uh, that wasn't just a, a piece of propaganda. That was something that apparently Putin uh, believed in and continues to believe. 
And uh, one of the reasons for uh, miscalculations and the reasons why the war went so bad for Russia in, in terms of uh, really the expectation was that the uh, Ukrainians would welcome Russian troops with flowers. Um, that was based on the idea that uh, Ukrainians were really Russians. And uh, they were really captured by a bunch of nationalists and Nazis and so on and so forth. So Putin comes uh, with the imperial notion of the Russian nation that includes all East Slavs or maybe all Russian speakers. And um, this war uh, not only strengthens Ukraine's separate identity from Russia, but it certainly clearly sends a signal back to Russia in the form of tens of thousands, maybe over 100,000 body bags, that um, Ukraine is not Russia, that it's time for Russia to rethink its relations not only toward the empire, but also try to rethink their understanding and their geography of who is Russian and who is not Russian. That the time when that thinking was dominant, the 19th century, the imperial era, it's gone, we are in a new period, in a new time. So it's it's time um, for Russia to, to rethink and reinvent itself. So you think that Putin and Russia's misreading of history led it to not understand the extent to which Ukrainian national identity was rooted in its history? Uh, exactly, exactly. So it is, it is uh, bad history. It's uh, misreading of history that is a major contributing factor, not only to the start of the war, but also to the way how uh, how war goes so far. And uh, certainly, Ukrainians surprise not only Russians but surprise probably a good part of the world with their resistance and resilience. Uh, and uh, this is one more reason to go back to the particular type of history. And, and look back at it and, and see whether whether it, it, it was misread or not. We scholars working in the field knew right away that, of course, that was very bad history. But we uh, believed uh, or wanted to believe that it was just deliberate misuse of history. But the, the way how things turned out, it looks like that it was not just uh, abuse and misuse, but it was also uh, misreading of history. It seems to me unusual that this is a conflict in which history is being used as a weapon almost, and that historians are needed more than ever to help make sense of what's happening. Is is, is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say that. And uh, that's at least uh, is uh, part of the reason why I decided to write this book and believe that looking at this war from the historical perspective can tell us certain things that um, no other maybe profession, no, no other field can offer. I write in the introduction to my book that after going back and forth on the question of whether this is, this is a good project for a historian, whether we can contribute something, I convinced myself to rephrase Winston Churchill that historians are the worst commentators on the contemporary events except everybody else. So I, I still believe in that. You mentioned also there the Russian revolutions of 1917. Are there any aspects of those events that we need to understand to make sense of more recent events? What we see in 1917 is a beginning of, of the processes that continue today. 
Because 1917, it's not just the year of the uh, Russian Revolution, of actually two revolutions, one in February, another in October. It's also one of the years of World War I. And World War I is very much, in terms of its outcome, it's about the disintegration of empires, Austria-Hungarian, Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire. And Russian Empire was saved by the Bolsheviks, who put it back, stitched together with the help of internationalist ideology, and by making concessions to the nationalities, because it was also not, the so-called Russian Revolution was not just Russian Revolution; it was a revolution of nations in the in the Russian Empire. So uh, the Bolsheviks were quite innovative and, and managed to put it together, not only by force, but also by this, this, the, this new policy toward nationalities. And they believed themselves, including Mikhail Gorbachev, that the, the Soviet Union had solved the nationality question. Uh, only to be surprised in 1991, when the Soviet Union died a death of empire, of any other empire, falling apart along the borders and boundaries that at least originally were drawn on the basis of linguistic and, and cultural maps. So the story that we see now, and, and I look at it as one of the wars of the Russian and Soviet succession, war of the disintegration of the empire, the story begins in 1917. And uh, we, we want to, to believe, at least we hope, that maybe this is a final chapter in that story, but we really don't know. You look at the fall of the Ottoman Empire, it takes centuries for that to happen. The Yugoslav wars in the 1990s would be difficult to understand without knowing something about the Ottoman Empire and the, the emergence of, of, the, of the independent Slavic states, creating of the federation and so on and so forth. The today's Middle East and ISIS would be difficult to understand without uh, understanding the Ottoman history. So the story of the reformatting of the former Ottoman space is still is still going on. So again, I, I'm hopeful that this is this is this war uh, will be um, a final chapter or one of the final chapters. But uh, knowing the history of other empires and what happens in, in that post-imperial space, I'm, I'm not really rushing to conclude that it is the final chapter. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. These are events with a huge afterlife, a huge century-spanning afterlife. Before we get into the events of 1991, are there any other historical moments between 1917 and the early 1990s that you think we should factor in? The World War II, you can't, you can't get around it if, if, if you talk about Europe, Eastern Europe and Ukraine in particular. So on the per capita basis, Ukraine belongs to the three countries that suffered the biggest losses in World War II, in Europe in particular, and globally as well. So the formation of today's borders of Ukraine, this is very much the, the result and outcome of World War II. And um, the story of the uh, Crimea and Crimea being passed from the Russian Federation to Ukraine in 1954 is also directly related to World War II because during the World War II, the indigenous population of the, the Crimean Tatars were forcefully resettled to Kazakhstan, to Central Asia. So a lot, a lot happened in the region during World War II. And uh, that's, that's another important part of the story. And the next would be the, the fall of the Soviet Union, disintegration of the USSR in 1991. That is by far, I would say, maybe the most important uh, piece of history that one has to take into account looking at this war. One reason for that is that the Soviet Union fell on the issue of Ukraine. So Ukrainians in December of 1991 voted for their independence in referendum. More than 90% of the population said yes. And uh, the Soviet Union fell apart within one week, was dissolved by the leaders of Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. And uh, the question is, why did it happen? Because the question that Ukrainians answered in the referendum of December 91 was not whether you want the Soviet Union to continue or not. The question was whether you want Ukraine to become independent. But with Ukraine going independent, neither Gorbachev nor Yeltsin believed that there was any sense in continuing for Russia to continue this imperial project in, in the Soviet GORBs without Ukraine, which was the second largest Soviet republic, also was Slavic Republic and traditionally Orthodox or East Christian. And Yeltsin initiates the process of the disintegration of the Soviet Union and looking for different forms how to maintain Russia's not just presence, but control over the post-Soviet space. And they create the Commonwealth of Independent States, very much dominated by Russia. And Ukraine, that was formerly one of the co-founders of the organization, never formally joined that organization. Because Ukraine looked at the Commonwealth of Independent States as an instrument for what was known in Kyiv as civilized divorce. 
So from the very beginning, you have very different expectations from that organizations on part of Russia and Ukraine. Russia looks at that as the instrument to maintain control over the post-Soviet space. Ukraine, the second largest republic, doesn't join the organization and looks at it, participates in its activities to a degree that they think that will allow them to negotiate a peaceful exit from the Russia-dominated space. And this is the story of the early 1990s and the story that is very important for understanding of today's war because in, in that war, that's where this, this really different visions, different expectations, they clashed. One thing that really struck me reading your book and that I perhaps hadn't realized before is how pivotal the events of 1993 were in this story. Are there any other aspects of that year that you think we should talk about? 93, it's uh, the year when Boris Yeltsin, the democratically elected president of Russia, and really the hope for for democracy in Russia and in the post-Soviet space, makes a decision to use army against the parliament. And the uh, Russian tanks start firing at the Russian parliament. The, the, The same building that Yeltsin defended in 1991 against the Soviet tanks and against the hardliners coup against Gorbachev. A few months after after this attack on the parliament, Yeltsin rewrites constitution, uh, making it uh, super presidential in many ways republic. And given uh, all these opportunities, leverages, instruments to create an authoritarian state into the hands whoever would succeed him. And if Yeltsin was trying to use this super-presidential republic and prerogatives that came with that and and the power that was uh, really focused in in the president's office to deal with the communist revanche or nationalist revanche and, and, and somehow try to save in some form Russian democracy... Uh, Putin, who came after him, used the very same constitution and and the very same rights uh, to uh, put Russia uh, more than ever before uh, on the path for authoritarianism. But that path really starts in 1993 with the tanks firing at the Russian parliament. It is very important for Russia. It is important for understanding of uh, Russian state and Russian's regime. Um, But it's also interesting to note that around the same time, Ukraine resolves the tensions and and the constitutional crisis, the tensions between the president and the parliament, really in a very different way, by calling for new presidential elections, which were democratic, uh, eventually producing a constitution with the balance of powers being there, not a perfect one, but still being there. So that's between 93 and 96. That's where the path of Ukraine and Russia, they start to go in different directions. They part their ways, uh, not only in terms of uh, language, culture, history, thinking about independence and not independence, but also in in a sense of what sort of government, what is the role of democracy in that society would be. So this adds certainly to the to the tensions that already existed between Russia and Ukraine over, over other issues, including territorial issues. But now you add also basically authoritarian state or the state that becomes authoritarian very fast and the state that uh, one of the few post-Soviet states that maintains democracy. And, of course, the first state in Russia, the second is Ukraine. 
And in Ukraine, the path towards democracy seemed to accelerate in the years after that, didn't it? Uh, Exactly, exactly. In Ukraine, the elites were trying to emulate Russia for a long period of time, certainly in the 1990s, to do exactly what Yeltsin was trying to do in terms of rewriting constitutions, somehow pressuring the parliament to pass the laws that the presidential administration wanted, having a referendum on the presidential powers. But each time uh, authoritarianism was rising in Ukraine, you would get a popular protest which became known as Maidan, the Maidan revolutions. The first one is in 2004, the Orange Revolution, and then 2013, 2014, uh, the protest that became known as uh, Euro Revolution, European Revolution, or Revolution of Dignity. And uh, that's that's what stops really kind of a creeping uh, authoritarianism, authoritarian tendencies in Ukraine, people on the streets, and that that never happened in Russia at least to to that degree. How was this growing path democracy viewed and received in Russia? The 1990s, again, I don't think that there was much much attention paid by Boris Yeltsin, for example, to those developments, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, he was thinking about Russia somewhere down the line as a democratic state. So he was using authoritarian ma- methods, allegedly in the interests of the democracy that would come, would come one day. But things changed certainly with uh, coming to power of Vladimir Putin at the beginning of the 2000s, and he already viewed the Orange Revolution of 2004 as a, a direct threat to Russia. Ukrainian democracy was a threat to the Russian regime in Kremlin on two levels. The first one is that really integration into the European structures depended on whether the country was democratic or not. If Ukraine is democratic, that means that its its chances, and not just chances, but the actual politics allowed it to get closer to Europe, to get integrated into a particular program, and that door was closed for Russia, that that was becoming more and more authoritarian. So democracy had this also geopolitical geopolitical dimension. And other one was that uh, at the time when Russia was becoming more and more authoritarian, Ukraine where Putin believed there were no Ukrainians, there were other Russians or lesser Russians, was becoming democratic, which was a threat to the legitimacy of the of the regime in Kremlin. And Ukraine since 2004 emerges as really, if not promised land, then certainly the, some form of a model for development for the Russian liberals. And, and they continued to look at, at Ukraine with a hope. If Ukrainians can do that, then probably Russians can do that as well. So uh, from that point of view, the success of the Ukrainian democracy presented a bigger threat to the regime in Moscow than NATO could ever present. The more democracy in Ukraine, the more suspicion toward Kiev was coming from, from Moscow, uh, starting with the beginning of this century. We've talked a lot, obviously, about Putin and his views and his views of history. Is it possible to separate him and his views from those of Russia more widely and Russians more widely? Uh, I, I think it is possible, but it uh, it is difficult and it was uh, becoming uh, more and more difficult the longer he was staying in power. 
because the longer he was staying in power, the more control he was he was assuming over media, uh, over society as a whole. And uh, at the end of the day, his narrative of history really there are clear, clear links and connections with the Russian imperial thinkers and and the emigre writers and so on and so forth, was something that was uh, accepted, of course, as a norm by part of the Russian society. But uh, at the end became became a dominant narrative because of the position of the person who produced this narrative. The society, uh, certainly the, the professional historians didn't think that way, uh, a big part of the elite didn't think that way, but at the end, uh, it was Putin's vision that became the vision—the vision of the state and of the state propaganda. There are two geographical regions that have obviously been in the headlines a lot since 2014, and they're Crimea and the Donbas. Could you talk through to listeners, I suppose, who may have heard those names but not be entirely familiar? as to why they're so important historically, what led to those becoming particularly important regions, I suppose? Crimea is the only region in, in Ukraine where Ukrainians uh, didn't and don't constitute uh, the majority ethnic Ukrainians, I mean. The uh, majority are ethnic Russians. And uh, the Crimea was part of the Russian Federation before uh, World War II, and then was transferred to Ukraine in the aftermath of World War II. And the main reason for that was really geography, because Crimea is a peninsula and Ukraine happens to be the mainland. And Crimea, as being part of the Russian Federation, was lagging behind in terms of the post-war reconstruction, economic development, and so on and so forth, for administrative reasons, logistical reasons, and so on and so forth. So the Soviet government in the mid-1950s decided that uh, we, we should actually make peninsula closer to the mainland and uh, administratively and, and, and economically and otherwise, and that should, should work. And it, it, it worked on, on, on all those levels. But then, with the fall of the Soviet Union, what we see is that the fact that Russians were the majority in Crimea, that led to the changes in the Ukrainian constitution, where the Crimea as a region was elevated to the level of the autonomous republic. So some autonomy was given to the Crimea. But Crimea was considered to be by Putin, but not only by Putin, I would say, but by many people in Kremlin, in the Russian administration, to be really a Russian land that was lost by mistake to, to, to Ukraine. Crimea had a big symbolic uh, importance in Russian culture, imperial culture. That was the location of the holy places of the Crimean War of the mid-19th century, which was an imperial war. And the, the holy places were conceptualized, thought about in terms of Russian imperial nationalism, plus Russian ethnic majority. The Russian movement in the Crimea or anywhere in Ukraine was never strong enough to put on the agenda the question of, of really separation. But there was enough tension between Crimea and Kyiv that when the military takeover of the Crimea started in 2014, and that's February of 2014, that's really the beginning of this war, current war, uh, there, was enough, uh, there was enough people uh, that the Russian security services, intelligence services could, could mobilize. 
The Sevastopol remained to be the uh, base uh, of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So Russians had really a sort of extraterritoriality there on the territory of Sevastopol. The troops that moved and then took over Crimea overall in 2014 were certainly coming from Sevastopol. So Crimea always had a history that was maybe somewhat separate from the history of Ukraine. But it never had the Russian-Ukrainian tensions, either in Crimea or anywhere else, never reached the stage where they wouldn't be or couldn't be managed by, by the government in Kiev. But that was something that was enough for Putin to use as an instrument in his war on Ukraine. The closest parallel would be uh, many were talking about uh, annexation of the Crimea in 2014, drawing parallels with Anschluss, the takeover of Austria by Nazi Germany in 1938, or the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia in, in 1939, and then, of course, Hitler would go after entire Czechoslovakia. So the, the closest parallel would be with, with the Nazi Germany and the temp to take over the German-speaking or ethnic German territories and then using that as a platform for further aggression. So the, the parallels are very, very close. I wanted to talk to you about historical parallels such as that, because, so for instance, in April, the German president drew parallels between the Nazi quashing of the 1943 Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and the invasion of Ukraine. Do you think such historical comparisons are useful or are they fraught in some senses with danger as well? Well, on, on the one hand, there is a particular a, a taboo, really, on comparing either Hitler to any of the current sitting leaders or, or uh, comparing Nazi Germany either to Russia or to, to any other country. And I, I certainly understand where it is coming from. But as a historian, I also should say that we historians, we... We can't just ignore the, the the parallels, historical parallels in particular. We have to be dispassionate. Of course, it's important not to politicize history. But on the other hand, there are so many parallels between the project of Greater Germany and now the project of Greater Russia. So ignoring that would be really responsible and to a certain degree betraying the principles of our profession. So I'm okay probably with, with not exactly okay, but I can understand taboos when it comes to the public discourse. But I think that when it comes to the academic discourse and our research, those taboos should not be there because then we have blind spots and we miss very important things in history. And uh, th that means that we... Uh, as historians, we have much less ability to uh, help our contemporaries to understand not just history, but also what is happening today. We've talked a bit about these events being part of a wider narrative sweep. Do you think that the current conflict has the potential to shift the global axis of power? Do you think these are events that have major international repercussions? I'm absolutely convinced that this war has and will continue to have a major impact on the global developments. And this war is uh, compared quite often now, and, and for very good reason, uh, to World War II. This is the, the largest war in Europe uh, since World War II in terms of the number of soldiers, number of guns, shells, 
the level of destruction, the, the sort of atrocities that are being committed, and so on and so forth. So it's not exactly World War II, but the fact that it's the, the biggest since World War II tells you that this is, this is a big event. And it's all only natural to expect that the event of such proportions would impact not just Russia and not just Ukraine. And indeed, this is this is what already is happening, and probably that that the, the trend will continue. One thing is very clear that Russia will emerge out of that war weakened, significantly weakened compared to the way how it was on February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, militarily. They bragged that they were the second strongest army in the in the world. And the Ukrainian joke now goes that they turned out to be the second strongest army in Ukraine. That is important clarification, I would say. Uh, and uh, economically, it's the same. So we are dealing at least for, for some period of time, it will continue a, a sort of an implosion of Russia. We also see today the strengthening of the transatlantic alliance, strengthening of NATO, expansion of NATO. Sweden is joining NATO, changing its policy of neutrality that was there for 200 years or more than 200 years. Well, this is, uh, this is a historic event. And again, it is directly related to this war. What you see is also Russia reorienting itself in many ways from Europe toward China and toward the East. And uh, this is also a historic development uh, that the, the beginning of, of the current policies that are being changed are not even at the end of the Cold War, but it's the early 1970s detente when the Soviet Union starts exporting oil and gas to, to Europe, to Central Europe in particular. So now you, you, you see all these things, the reverse, it, it goes now toward the East, not toward Europe. And I expect uh, all these things that I talked about, uh, and we see them already happening, I expect them to continue just because of the impact of the war itself, but also because there are other processes that really support the, the developments that I just discussed. The uh, concern about the fossil fuels and, and climate change certainly contributing to the trend of divesting Europe from Russian oil and gas, and the war accelerated that. So war accelerates certain processes that were already taking place, happening, and the impact of the war is global, not just European. And just as much as this is a story about the Russian attack, it's one about the Ukrainian fight back. Do you think, because of the historical things we've talked about, this conflict will leave Ukrainian people with a stronger sense of national identity. Yes, I have no doubt in that regard. The war started to change Ukraine already in 2014. The processes of the consolidation of the nation, stronger national identity, they started in 2014. And one of the mistakes of Putin was that, on a certain level, believed that in 2022 he was invading Ukraine of 2014. 
the expectation would be that it would be another Crimea or maybe maybe something a little bit more difficult, but roughly, roughly there. So all these dramatic changes that happened in Ukraine between 2014 and 2022 were pretty much missed. And, and those changes were about the consolidation of the nation. The political map of Ukraine was changed. Before that, presidential elections were divided in Ukraine half and half, and then there would be pendulum going back and forth the winner would get 52% and, and the loser would get 47 or something like that. What you look at the presidential elections after 2014, either election of um, President Poroshenko in 2014 or then later President Zelensky, it's a landslide, at least when you look at the, at the map. They're carrying 90% of the precincts, which also tells me about the, the sense of unity and coherence in the nation that didn't exist before. The issue of whether Ukraine should orient itself toward Russia and the West was resolved with the Russian takeover of the Crimea. The nation became clearly very much pro-European. The goal of joining NATO was uh, inscribed in Ukrainian constitution after that. And uh, all of these changes really became clear and obvious in February and March of 2022. At no point in this war, any poll ever showed that there would be less than 75% of the Ukrainians that believed in victory. Even in early March of 2022, when it wasn't clear whether Kyiv would, would, would survive or not, what would happen, how far the Russian troops would go, the majority of population believed, believed in victory. And now, of course, th- th- those numbers went, went up. Modern nations are being imagined by by historians and and philosophers and political thinkers. They're being mapped with the help of uh, linguists and ethnologists who who collect folklore. Uh, but they uh, come into existence, unfortunately, very often as the result of of, of wars and and major conflicts. Um, and uh, there was a big hope uh, back in 1991 that uh, we were able to get around that, that one of the biggest empires or post-imperial states fell apart without a major war. A sort of a miracle happened. And, you know, my colleague Stephen Kotkin wrote a book, Armageddon Averted. The expectation was that the Cold War could end really in some form of nuclear Armageddon. And uh, what we see now is that, uh, unfortunately, this laundry process of disintegration of the Russian Empire still continues. So it's uh, sad uh, to, to acknowledge that, but that's what we learned from this war. One of the things that we learned from it. That was Serhi Plocky. His latest book, The Russo-Ukraine War, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Serhi has previously appeared on the podcast to discuss the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. If you're interested in hearing that, just search for Chernobyl in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.